Now imagine this. You've been skiing across the high Canadian Arctic tundra all day long, and it is cold. It is close to minus 50 degrees Celsius. And it's also blowing 100K an hour, so it's close to minus 80 degrees Celsius. It is so cold and so brittle that when you get to the end of the day and you reach in your pocket and you pull out that granola bar that you've been thinking about for the last hour, and you go to bite down on this granola bar, it is so cold and so brittle that when you bite down on this bar, your entire front tooth shatters. That's right. Welcome to Real Van City. My name is Michael Tranmer, and today's guest this week on the program, Kevin Valilli, this is what he does for fun. Kevin is a world-class explorer and leadership mentor. This is a really interesting conversation that we had on this week's episode, not just about the expeditions that he does, and he's got a big one coming up this winter to Ellesmere Island, and look that one up on the map, and you'll see that it's the 10th largest island in the world, and it's way up at the very top of Canada. So he's going to face some, again, some extreme cold uh, in this episode, Kevin shares about the inspiration behind these expeditions that he does and the importance of finding meaning and purpose in his adventures. He talks about the collaboration with his Inuit teammates that he has and the, all the training that is involved to uh, six, safely uh, complete these journeys. Uh, we also talk a lot about the creativity and the design involved in the planning and execution of these expeditions. And also the importance of embracing a real child life sense of play and exploration. Uh, we talk about his adventure work and how it pairs with his, his work, his professional work as an architecture, and also the work that he does with the AIP group. He works with this incredible uh, group of other extreme athletes that they work with the senior leadership and senior executives, and they really marry the adversity of the, these adventures and the extreme sports that they do with the challenges in the business world. So all sorts of interesting facets in this. Um, Buckle up, enjoy, maybe get an extra blanket or a toque because we talk about the cold quite a bit, but uh, I think you'll enjoy. All right, let's get to it. Here's Kevin. I'm looking forward to this conversation, naturally talking about expeditions, past and future. I know mm -hmm. you have a very important one coming up in February that we were talking about before we hit record here. So yeah, I think this conversation is going to go about expeditions and adventure and nature and why you do that yep. and also looking forward to talking about the leadership aspect as, sure. as well and how you match that with with everything you everything you do on your personal side and also on the professional side as well and then i guess the third part would be like how do you balance the architecture as well in that compartment of of your brain so looking forward to the conversation yeah me too yeah so what are you most excited about these days uh most excited mm -hmm. about these days would be my expedition coming up uh this winter i mean that's really on my mind a lot these days it's uh difficult when you do these major expeditions uh the hardest part is getting to the start line there is a huge amount of uh, sponsorship required to pull them off certainly when you have uh aspirations like we do for this particular expedition with filming and so forth in very very remote locale so uh yeah it's been full full bore for the last well Essentially, we've had this dream to do this for three years now. So there's been a lot of work <laughs> going on for three years. But the last uh, last year has been pretty nuts. And this uh, expedition is going to capture which specifically? Well, we're traversing uh, Ellesmere Island from the southern point to the northern point. Uh, for those that don't know Ellesmere Island uh, in the Canadian High Arctic, um, it's 10th largest island in the world. And sort of beside Greenland, Greenland's bigger, uh, but it's at the northern end. So when you're at the tip, northern tip, uh, there's a Royal Canadian Air Force Base. They're called Alert. And Alert is the eyes and ears to Russia right now. And it's the furthest, most northern permanently inhabited settlement, if you want to call it as such, on the planet. And there's 50-odd people there, military, uh, live year-round. And uh, that's where we're going to be finishing. So it's a pretty neat idea of, of traversing this landscape that few have ever traversed before. Uh, certainly the route we're doing at the time of year we're doing and the way we're doing it, it's never been done in modern time. And it's going to be 
really eyes into uh, a different place, truly like Mars. And it's always been a passion of mine to go there. And what's the inspiration behind doing it? Well, it's an interesting one because it's it's changed, uh, as everything does, right? Uh, you have uh, you have goals, but your purpose is kind of always the same. But for us, the goal was originally for myself and my teammate, Ray Zahab, who I skied to the South Pole with and so forth, uh, to ski across Ellesmere. That's what we know. We, we drag big old heavy sleds across these landscapes. And uh, we know it well. We've done it a lot. And uh, we set out to do this. We anticipated it would take us 50 days. Uh, with all our research, it, it suggests that it would. And we started out and realized pretty quickly that uh, we did this. We attempted this two years ago. And uh, as we were heading out, it was uh, real cold. Like we're talking next level cold there, minus 50. And it's interestingly, we could not move the speed we had thought we could, not with the gear. We had, we had 50 days of food, about a 300 pound sled. And we anticipated we'd be able to do, oh, you know, uh, maybe 30K a day, uh, 20 to 30K a day uh, was the hope. And uh, in the end, we were doing 10 kilometers a day and killing ourselves doing it and realized this thousand K journey was going to take a hundred days, not 50. And we had 50 days of food. Uh, so all the alarm bells started going off. Uh, at the time we had snowmobile with us for a period of time, independent of us, but filming us. Cause we wanted to capture this too, not just be out there with our little cameras. We wanted to get something of this. So they were going to be with us for a while. And we thought, well, okay, let's go from being uh, unsupported to a supported expedition. Let's give them some of our gear for a short period of time before they turn back. And maybe that'll speed us up as we go. It sped us up a little bit, but still it was proving to be very, very difficult. But with this extreme cold, these machines couldn't survive. So they started to break down and they were older machines and they just, there was no way they were going to make this journey or as far as we had hoped as well. Everything was falling apart. And it was finally on the last day that, um, or second to last day, uh, machine, one of the machines had broken down in camp. They were fixing it. And Ray and I said, we're just going to go. We're just going to ski ahead. And uh, we'll meet you guys when we do. And it was like, I don't know, nine in the morning. And you understand again how nasty it is out there. And we were going much lighter now. We weren't carrying our survival gear with us. We basically had a shotgun for polar bears packed with some, you know, down jacket kind of thing. And off we went, anticipating to hear the drone of the machines coming through in the next couple hours. And um, nothing until four in the afternoon, 3.34, and lights dropping of course because that part of the world it's getting dark real quick at that time of year and it was getting real cold we had no gear there was no machines and i remember looking up on up on that hillside and there was there was a pack of uh, arctic uh, uh, wolves checking us out we were and interestingly there you'd think that'd be kind of fun the wolves of ellesmere summer very nice evidently around eureka and according to all the locals in Greece Fjord, they will hunt you and eat you in a moment. So here it was. Well, I don't know what group they are, but they're up there. And we were also now back in polar bear territory, really without the stuff we needed to protect ourselves. Um, and it became serious. So we started to turn around and start to ski back, figured the machine's not going to come. We have another now 25-kilometer return trip in the dark when we heard the drone and the machine coming. Mm. And the next day, uh, we said to ourselves, we're not going to go until the machines start in the morning and the next morning of course the machine didn't start and we just stayed in our tent it was 1 30 in the afternoon before it started again and we realized no this is not going to work we got to rethink this we got to pause we could have just quit and said you know beaten done it uh that's it but no and uh on our way back by a machine terry noah a young uh, guy was helping us out and is going to be helping us on this expedition as well saying you know if you had dogs, dogs would be the perfect solution for this. You don't worry about the machine, in a sense. Uh, you don't need fuel for the machine because you just have food for the dogs and you can hunt that on the land. They're natural polar bear protection, and this is the way the people of the north have been traveling for millennia. And it was a real aha, going, okay, maybe that's a way to do this. So uh, fast forward two years, and we're now going to be uh, doing a combination of, of uh, skiing and dog sledding. You don't just hop on a sled. You actually end up skiing beside it because the dogs are just kind of helping you with your gear. But we've also, uh, we have uh, uh, teamed up and partnered with uh, two young uh, Inuit leaders in the community who are part of our team now and will be doing this with us. So uh, it's become a joint non-Inuit Inuit team and coming together in a really, uh, in a real way. 
there's nothing forced here. These are friends and let's do this. And uh, it speaks to all sorts of fascinating things. Uh, and certainly uh, with, with us learning from them and them learning from us, uh, doing an extreme uh, effort like this, they're going to learn a lot. And we're going to learn so much on the land from these guys. So um, pretty stoked on that, actually. It's going to be an amazing journey. Very different than anything I've done before. Wow, it's so in-depth and so much involved with it. And, yeah. and the, the Inuit folks up there, when, when you told them about this, what, what you wanted to do and what you're going to do, um, and, and they're on board with that. They think it's, it's, it's possible. Uh, beyond it, that. But it's not something that they naturally do on a... No, no, because it's, it's uh, no one in this, that community of Greece or anywhere there have actually traveled that far north. They go to a certain spot on, they know Ellesmere to a degree, but nowhere that far north. I mean, this is right across the island, right? And it's next level for them too. They're super stoked. And I just got a, a, a sort of a note there, a text message from one of our young teammates. And he says, I just can't wait to do this. Oh, like cool. he was just stoked on it. Right. And um, I mean, these guys are badass, yeah. right? I mean, they, they're out there hunting every day. They're, you know, fending off polar bears all the time. Like this is their world. And they uh, are very comfortable in that. And that's what we're going to learn. But also what they can learn from us is actually how do you physically certainly as myself and Ray, we're older now, like we've been doing this forever. And but we understand how to do it. And it's like, how do you take care of yourself over that period of time, pushing yourself that hard that long, and come out the other end successfully not falling apart. And uh, there's gonna be a real uh, ebb and flow of, of, uh, of, you know, information between us that I think is going to be fascinating. And then as part of that, are you are you helping them train during these months ahead of the expedition in February, which is about only three or four months out. Like, are you, you must be mindful of their physical fitness and what they're doing to prepare. And yeah, uh, definitely. And uh, certainly, I, Ray has been more involved than I on that. Uh, he is a trainer by profession. So uh, he's certainly been uh, involved and suggesting. But in many ways, you don't overstep your grounds either. Like, right. you don't want to pretend they don't know uh, either. So it's uh, being very conscious of. Uh, you got to keep fit and you got to get ready and being a lot younger will probably have no problem. <laughs> but, uh, but that end of, uh, and certainly surviving in the, the real challenge in those, in that environment is the cold. And you got to understand, man, it's, it's, I don't, I don't know if I want just, to, but try it. Try it it's stupid cold. How right? cold? What does it feel like? Uh, well, it feels nothing except that it's just, it's piercing through you and just wants to get into you all the time. Yeah. And the only time you're comfortable is when you're moving. If you're not moving, and that's the misconception, is that it must be so hard to ski all the day. Well, actually, no. In those environments, the only time you're happy is when you're skiing because you're warm. It's every other time you're not so happy because you're getting real cold in the tent, whatever it is. But to give you an idea, I mean, I was mentioning it to you earlier last year on a reconnaissance uh, 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 trip last year to Bath. And it was um, we had a special thermometer, minus 49.7. Winds were accusting at 100K an hour. So we're talking by the charts, minus 85 Celsius. Like that's crazy cold. And enough so that um, my front tooth, I just bit into a um, Fig Newton and it snapped right off right off so that gives you that's how brittle things get so i'm in the process now of getting this implant and everything else because it snapped off i mean mama like how cold is that but also to give you a sense of like the way at nighttime when you sleep uh, to give you a sense is that this is a, probably a good feeling is that you know you you have a thermorest kind of you know or but a foamy on the ground but then you get a super down mat foamy as well so it's double mat system so you're really trying to get yourself off that cold ground and then you wear like full top bottom uh, arctic level underwear and fleece top and bottom in your body neck warmer big sealskin hat um and booties and then with that i slip myself into a um into a vapor barrier which is kind of like a almost like a plastic bag, I suppose, to prevent moisture from going into the sleeping bag. And then I slip myself into a, uh, beyond that, a zero degree down bag, uh, zipped up to my mouth. And then I slip myself in, not in this process, of course, but a minus 60 degree down bag, one of the best in the world by Western Mountaineering. And I have this much exposed and your nose is exposed. And I always think it's going to get frosty because it gets so cold. But then you're generally okay. You're warm-ish at that point, and you fall asleep. And typically at three or four in the morning, you wake up convulsing. You're so cold, shaking, 
with all that. Mm-hmm. And you, it, you realize it's really hard to combat that coal. Like it's just coming at you, right? And add to this the fact that there's polar bears outside and they're coming. And can you imagine the process of having to unravel yourself out of this apparatus, then get yourself dressed and then go outside to get your shotgun to shoot a shot into the air to scare it away? It's going to take you 15 minutes. It's one of these things is that there has to be different tactics. <laughs> um, so you're definitely putting yourself out there a little bit with that. Um, but that gives you a sense of yeah. it's, it's all consuming all the time. So what there's, there's, it's not like there's someone staying up on, on guard. Like what is that procedure? If, uh, if a well, you have a, you, you put there? a, uh, you put an emergency line, you have a polar bear fence, they call it, and just a wire hmm. and you hook up a, uh, a shotgun shell to it. It goes hmm. bang or a blank that is. And, the theory being that when they trips it, that or a flare goes off and it scares it. 1,300 pound predator that is three feet away from you. Yeah, sometimes yes, sometimes no, depends. But that's your, that's your safeguard. However, the best, because you don't know they're there until they're there, uh, but the best form of defense is a dog. And having dogs, they know when they're a kilometer away and they start barking and it gives you plenty of time to get ready if you have to go out. Uh, so dogs are, have always traditionally been the way to protect yourself from bears. Bears are much wary of a pack of dogs, whether they're going to come in, they'll scare them off. And they really are your first line of defense against a bear. And that is a very real thing up there. The dogs are amazing and they, they thrive. And, you know, you get this pushback I've had from people say, oh, it's cruel to the dogs. No, it's not. They love it. These are special Greenlandic dogs. These are dogs that have been doing this forever and they thrive they just they minus 50 degrees are curled up outside and this is what they do not our local dogs could not do this um but these dogs and they just love it this is what they're born and bred to do traveling on the land and their owners love them i mean they're part of their family so it's there's no cruelty involved here they're they are part of of, of travel and they're part of their lives so they have to treat them well but uh interestingly and as a side note and which is the most important thing to this story in my opinion is that um between 1950 and 1970s uh there was uh there was a real effort to uh based on arctic sovereignty reasons to make sure that people were permanently inhabited through our arctic islands Ellesmere Island had no one. I mean, it's the 10th largest island in the world. It's the closest one from Canada to Russia. And it's like, who's to say that it's ours? You know, and the only way you can have people saying that it's, it's uh, I mean, a country saying that it's our land is that people living there permanently. So that was the initiative for the Canadian government to start to relocate Inuit people to settlements all through the north. And, you know, you go, I've been to the villages of Pangerton that they took them from Cumberland Sound on Baffin Island, moved them to Pang. Uh, and Chris Fjord was from five families from northern Quebec who were taken up there and said, oh, really good hunting. Surprise, surprise. You're going from a landscape where there's trees to honestly the most out there place on the planet. But then the Inuit were nomadic people. They would travel by dock. And it was like fine and dandy. You can settle them, say it up. You guys just stay here. We're going to go. And people will just get up and they'll go again. And what's going to hold them there? So in all their wisdom, the Canadian government decided they would prevent them from traveling on the land by killing all their dogs. So if you talk to any elder in, in the Arctic, it's called the dog slaughter. And uh, there's thousands and thousands of dogs who are killed by the, by the uh, RCMP. And I remember speaking to one elder in Pang, Pangerton. And she was telling me how she remembers as a little girl, uh, piles of dogs that she put at 10 feet high out on the sea ice burning. So there's a real, uh, it, there's, a, there's something there that has not healed yet. There's a wound. And uh, in 2019, the Canadian government officially apologized, uh, saying that, yeah, we made a mistake. And um, has tried to bring, bring back uh, dog teaming as a culturally relevant activity for the Inuit. What better way to do it than a, a joint Inuit, non-Inuit team going together to do something that has never been done in modern times? Maybe 10,000 years ago it was when time, times were a little bit different. But in our times, nothing like it. By dog team and really showcasing what's possible out there. And we're fortunate enough because we're also uh, partnered with BRP, with Skidoo, because we're going to have Skidoo's, brand new ones that can survive this, the best of the best, with us throughout this journey, filming it all. So we're going to come away with we have National Geographic photographer, National Geographic videographer on this journey who's going to film it independently of us. And we'll be, we'll be a, 
you know, like independent in a sense of no assistance, but geez, we're going to be a team together going through this thing and come away with, uh, with a really interesting story. I think. So okay. I don't know where it's going to go, but I think there's a lot there. Yeah. So what, how many, how many total people will be involved? In uh, between nine and 10. Okay. Yeah. So not, not that many. Well, not that many, but, yeah. uh, but that's a lot for me where I'm yeah, yeah. going two and three people for me, like nine or 10 people. Wow. Uh, probably 10. And uh, four of us, uh, two dog teams, uh, one musher, one skier. And uh, so that's the four of us. And then uh, the camera team, essentially, which will be six people, machines. Um, they have to bring their own fuel. We have a fuel drop, all these challenges, of course, associated with that. But capturing the story and capturing everything and, and actually connecting with uh, kids because we have, we have 25,000 plus classroom get that 25,000 classrooms uh, linked to this expedition through uh, I2P, uh, uh, raise a uh, uh, nonprofit, and uh, Kangeo Education. So legit. And uh, there'll be all sorts of lesson plans and connecting with the kids when we're out there live oh, wow. by began by this video streaming service, as well as after the fact and having all these lessons plans created about the geography, about the changing environment, about the, you know, the Inuit culture and what's being lost and what's being hopefully uh, in some ways supported again. So I think there's going to be a lot there, uh, almost too much in many ways. You sort of have to find your, your way through it. Yeah. So how, how are you doing that with, um, like, are you, you're the expedition lead. So if in terms of safety and coordinating and things like that, I'm sort of thinking with the, with the folk, the, with the folks on the, uh, like the camera crew, essentially, right? Yeah. You know, they, they obviously have to be experienced enough to be part of this adventure, but there's got to be some, you know, maybe there's going to be some other tough calls during the oh, there will expedition be. And, uh, that, that need to be made. Oh, yeah. And, and, and Terry, uh, who helped us last time, he's, he's, he's leading that side of the expedition, the snowmobile side. And uh, he's one of the most experienced guys in that part of the world. I trust him with my life. So he was, he's going to be able to take care of them. We're going to be working together as a team, obviously. If something is catastrophic happening, we're going to be conscious of it as well. They're never going to be very far from us because they want to film us. Uh, we can't move as fast, of course, because we're a bike dog team. But uh, uh, we're going to be one unit, obviously, moving forward. Uh, but we want to be independent in, in the sense that we're not taking stuff from them, taking food from them. We want them to say it's very doable as we're doing it as, as our one intact team. They're there to film it. Um, in many ways, we're going to be the best defense for polar bears for everyone. Albeit everyone's so experienced up there. They have no fear of these as Terry was putting it up on Eureka sound, which we'll be uh, traveling through. Um, there's one corner called bear corner at uh, go figure. And he said one time uh, there a few years back, he in spring, he had um, he had clients up there that were filming uh, wolves, I believe it was. And uh, in one evening or a course of one night, they had, as he put it, 10 separate visits by polar bear, 10 separate. So usually you get one polar bear every few weeks. Having 10 in one night, is, it's obviously just they're everywhere. So, what's what's a what is it like being that close to a polar bear? I don't know. Why. Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. I have been. I mean, yeah. Yes, I have, but not that much. Uh, but yes, I have. They're big, and interestingly, as, as and they're fascinating in creatures. As and again, as Terry was describing to us, he says, um, "It depends. You can tend by, tell them by their mannerisms what they're up about. If their ears are up and they're kind of perky, they're curious. But if ears are down, heads down." And worst, if they're going huff, 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 means they're coming to kill you and just start doing whatever you got to do to survive. That, that's, and it's like, I never want to see a bear going huff, huff, huff. <laughs> would be not good. Wow. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I, uh, I'm excited for this expedition. I'm, I'm uh, a little jealous that I'm not part of it, but also quite a bit not because it's, <laughs> I, you, go. you know, I've, I've done uh, some backcountry trips and spent some time in the outdoors, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Yes. It's a lot of preparation. It can be scary. Yeah. Uh, you can feel very alone. Like even, even backcountry ski hut trips, you know, out, um, you know, in the interior here in BC, if you're in a cabin with, with 10 people, helicopter access or ski in, ski out. Yep. I've, I've had moments where, uh, very anxious, yep. very anxious, like or nobody's around, even sort of same sort of thing that you may get on an airplane or something like, you know, if you stop breathing or something, um, anxiety attack type thing, right. very uncomfortable. 
yeah. very uncomfortable. Do, do you ever, because if you're, if you know, you're, you're very exposed up there. You are. It's funny. I don't dwell on it. And it's interesting because yeah, it could be overwhelming. And, uh, and I've been on trips like that. I love those trips. Um, but you know, one place I would have got that, I suppose, more than anywhere on earth would have been uh, skiing to the South Pole. Like you're, I mean, I remember I loved it. It was a weird thing. And I remember I was the last one into the tent typically at night. I, I, my job, I cut the snow chunks and tossed them into the vestibule. And guys, and um, a number of night, days, nights, like it's funny because it was always day. It was 24 uh, hours of sunshine there at that time of year. That's uh, still plenty cold, of course. But I would walk away from the tent. I would just, I would walk maybe 100, 200 meters away. And I remember I'd just stand there and go, you know, and I think to myself, I'm, in the entire planet Earth right now, I'm probably the furthest uh, away from anything living, myself and my three teammates, than anything else on the planet. Because even if you're in the most remote ocean on the planet, there's life all around you, like it's all beneath you, right? But Antarctica is quite unique that way. There is no life. There's nothing on the continent, like around the edge there is, of course, except there's a half inch insect that they theorize is blowing in off Saharan winds or some winds. Uh, that live on distant mountain peaks, nowhere close to us, but that feeds off bacteria. But that's the only living creature on Antarctica. There's nothing else except people at bases and us. And you think to yourself, I'm so out there. Like this is Mars in many ways, true. And I loved it. And strangely, I didn't get, I, that doesn't give me a sense of anxiety. Uh, I actually find it really inspiring. I love the fact that I'm giving this up. I've been given this opportunity somehow to be in this place where really no one has been very few people have been and uh i don't know i just figured figured it was kind of an honor and 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 something fantastic so no it didn't freak me out other things may freak me out nice yeah. <laughs> but not that nice so where does where does that inspiration like where does that inspiration come from to, to a you know you you you're also an architect you're also a facilitator you're also a speaker so you have a professional side as yep. well um you seem to like everything you've talked about so far is 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 like a lot it's 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 strategic and it's involved but it's a lot of play too oh, right yeah, we're yeah. going for a long walk across the most northern island totally. in in the world but yeah. it, it it comes from a, a place of exploring and inspiration which again is very childlike as well yeah. and and exploring but where 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 does that drive come from to, to keep on doing these extremely hard expeditions and but also do them in a meaningful and, and purposeful way well i mean I mean, interestingly, uh, it is childlike, and I, I guess I have to point to my childhood when it all happened, because uh, that's the only way, because I've been asked that many times, why, why? I mean, I'm inner city kid from Montreal. My parents didn't own a car. I um, grew up, my parents came from Ireland, had us, and uh, we were, you know, uh, just trying to make a life of it in, in Canada and Montreal, uh, but downtown Montreal, uh, and uh, really, the outdoor world was not even on in the horizon. Like there was nothing, no understanding of that. But uh, when I was nine, um, my brother and I got separated from my parents in a in a department store downtown. We'd gone in from where we were living uh, by metro bus, whatever. And uh, it was February, freezing cold, middle of winter kind of thing. Typical Montreal, dark. And uh, we were in this big department store downtown. For people in Montreal, know these big department stores, Baytons and so forth. And um, it was around closing time at nine o'clock at night, and my brother and I, being kids, running around and got separated from our parents. And an overzealous security guard decided to kick us out rather than help us find our parents. And um, I remember being literally thrown onto the street, this little kid, and being freaked out. And I remember I wasn't dressed for the cold because we'd come by bus or metro. And here I was outside, and Montreal was going off, and it was snowing hard. It was cold and dark, and I was freaking out. And all I wanted to think of was that I just wanted. I'm, were my parents right and then my brother started to cry and i remember like looking down at him and him looking up at me and all he said was uh i want i want mom i want i want to go home and uh you know i was nine he was five and i remember just holding his hand and saying i'll get you home and i had no idea what i was doing i had no idea where home was and i started to walk and um, looking back on it now, I kind of know where I was going. I, would, I went in the wrong direction. I started going south and I started going to the Chateau Champlain building, which is, uh, we called it the cheese grater. And if you've ever been in Montreal, it's an older building and it's all these semicircular windows, big hotel. And 
I knew that building. We called it the cheese grater. And I said, oh, that's the wrong way. So I turned around and I started heading off the other, other direction. And I wouldn't have known it then, but I would have crossed um, St. Catherine Street. And then I would have crossed MSNO. Didn't recognize the names, of course. And then I finally would have got up and did get up to Sherbrooke Street. Um, and Sherbrooke Street, I recognized. I remember reading it called Sherbrooke. I know Sherbrooke. We live near Sherbrooke Street. And uh, if this aha went, maybe if I follow this, use it as a guardrail of sorts, and maybe I'll find home. Well, we started to walk and walk and walk and um, freezing cold, dart into buildings, warm up, keep going. And uh, several hours later, I remember seeing the familiar sights of a, of a, a hill that we used to toboggan on, Murray Hill Park. I knew I was going the right way. And I knew my way home at that point. Finally, I stumbled in home hours and hours, well after midnight. Uh, and it was funny because I remember uh, seeing my home and uh, seeing a police car in front of the house and then thinking to myself, I wonder why is there a police car in front of my home? Just like having no clue. Right. And I, and I really felt like I'd done something bad. Like I was at fault here, which of course I wasn't, but I got home to a very relieved mom, dad, and police officer. And there was this weird emotion as this young little guy who took it on himself to do something and really overcame all these obstacles I didn't think I could do and did do. And everyone was so proud of me. And um, it wasn't long after that, I had this dream of, uh, of skiing to the South Pole, interestingly, or North Pole. I had this Arctic expedition in mind. It's kind of crazy because I was an inner city kid with no idea. So I always attributed to that, interestingly, as a nine-year-old, uh, was my first taste of an Arctic expedition. So that's my first Arctic expedition. That's very, <laughs> very interesting. But it, it, it kind of guides your whole life, right? And, yeah. and, and what you're doing now, so like for this expedition coming up, because, um, you know, with the, with the broadcasting live into the, the schools, 25,000 schools, which is amazing. So you're yeah. going to be teaching about geography. You're going to be teaching about the land. You're also inspiring about uh, indigenous culture yeah. and Inuit culture up there. So you're getting to, and also how you're actually doing it, you know, the, yeah. the, the physical expedition of yep. doing that. So you're sharing that experience with, with all these kids and, and all the film production that's going to come afterwards. So when you're going through your preparation moments now and you're, and you're training and you're skiing up Seymour on your, on, on the rollers, mm. uh, skis, which is incredible. Like, do you, do you sort of envision yourself as that nine-year-old kid again, like kind of charting new, new, territory like nobody else is doing what you guys are about to do it's 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 very impressive but it's 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 it doesn't sound like it's it's scary or challenging but it sounds like this is what is possible do you feel like you're showing yourself what is possible and what you're going to show all these other kids what is well, possible yeah you hope right you never know for sure and um i always try to drill down to people is uh like why do you do what you do and you know it's very easy to say that flippantly and very few people know their purpose like truly why do you do what you do? And it should be, it's like, oh, no, I, I like to make money. Well, probably not really a purpose. I mean, it's important to, you know, to survive. But your true purpose um, is something that took me a lot of years to really kind of come to clue, uh, a sense of. And um, uh, interestingly, it was really out in the Northwest Passage that I, it came to me. And it was because beforehand I had uh, decided I was going to, uh, leave a message to my daughters uh, up there. And if they ever want to see it, because I have two young daughters, well, now are older daughters. Um, and if they ever wanted to see what I had to say to them was um, uh, they'd have to go up there and get it. And I remember thinking fairly lightheartedly about it, but then wrote these notes to them. Uh, and when I started doing it, it only dawned on me when I was writing the notes that if they ever do read them, they may, it may not be in my lifetime. You know, I might be not here anymore so i'm speaking to my da daughters in the future that changes things a lot and uh your sense of why you do what you do comes to the fore and writing that all out and i remember writing those notes and we're of irish descent and i bought these clada rings these uh, wedding rings like uh, the, the irish wedding ring and i bought one for each one and then slipped the note into each one and put it in this abs super seal container brought it up north and i remember i laid it out and it's up there still and but it got me certainly when i was putting it down and really uh thinking about why i do what i do because i was we were sticking our necks out on that northwest passage journey big time and it was a number and it was right after a big incident where we nearly got pulled under this huge ice flow very sketchy and um 
So really, it was like, wow, that was close. And then you have this thought, why am I doing this? You know, and it was then it really it, it finally kind of gelled together in a simple way. Is you know, uh, like I'm inspiring others through my actions to be the best that they can be. That's my purpose to inspire others to be the best that they can be through my actions. And it kind of connects to everything I do. Uh, if I think about it, if I'm writing a book, if I'm creating art, if I'm doing whatever it is, it's that there's that inspiration. I'm taking a huge amount of inspiration from it, but also uh, you hope there's more to it than that. It's not all you. And in the beginning with expeditions, um, I realized I was drawn to something that was bringing awareness to something more so than just a physical effort. Uh, and the ones I really enjoyed were ones that, that was like the, you had mentioned in the opening, the Sendakan Death March retracing uh, a death march that uh, had never been retraced. And it was the first time we retraced it and chronicled that. And uh, 2,750 soldiers had died on that journey. But part of me, six had survived of 2,750 that were marched across this awful thing. And bringing awareness to that was like, that was a real power in that to me. I really found that uh, an important journey. So it was using these abilities, I guess you gain as an, as, as an adventurer and your ability to deal with adversity and challenge and fitness and all the things that go with that. But there's something more to it than just saying, Hey, I was just really fast or I was, did, you know, I did this. That is great. And the South Pole was part of that, I suppose, but I'm less inspired by that. And it's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, you did good. Big deal. I'm way more interested in the ones where we went to Northwest Passage to bring awareness to the changes up there. And we didn't succeed, actually. Ended up getting blasted by storms and couldn't finish the darn thing. But um, there was more important in my mind. There was more of a message there. And I wrote a book about that. And I just found, for me, that's where adventure lies. There has to be more to it than just simple self-gratification, which is important to a degree. But um, it has to be more. Uh, I'm too old, frankly. Amazing. Yeah. So it's an inspiration of, of the doing with the meaning and purpose behind it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of the same way. Like I can do a book and do a talk and do a show can do future performances in front of people. Yep. Anything's possible. Right. And, yep. and time is tight here. Yeah. And so if tight. we, we can continue to do things that surprise ourselves and are challenging for ourselves and fun for ourselves and yep. we get to behave like children and, and have fun doing it. Because we want to, because it feels good, and that can inspire others to, to, you know, do the same for whatever that means for for their lives. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and you mentioned being a child. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Like, remember those feelings as a kid when you just like, yeah, just you're just loving that moment of doing what you're doing. And I guess I aspire to that in everything I do. I want to. I don't enjoy it. Like, I'm really not getting an enjoyment out of it. I quit. I've I've done that my whole life. If I don't like it, I move on. That's not working for me. And uh, there has to be that moment, that flow state, whatever you want to call it, they call it these days, where you just get into it and you get wrapped in it and you really, it's special. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean there's not hard times in it, but there has to be more. There has to be that something. And I think with all the things, I think that's why I do a lot of different things is that I just don't obsess on one thing. There's too many things. Life's too short. Let's try to try it all, right? Yes. And uh, the things that don't work out, move on. And the things that do embrace it and try it, you know, and it's great fun. So, um, yeah. The work w- that you do with the AIP group, the leadership, leadership work with the uh, facilitation yep. and, and corporations are around North America, yep. are around the world. And, and you do this with, with other extreme folks like yep. yourself, big wave surfers, yes. ultra marathon runners, yep. and you tie the adversity of these expeditions that you do with leadership. And I was watching one uh, clip of yours and, and you mentioned purpose. Like you can't, you know, it's hard for, for folks in the corporate world and our, in our jobs to, to show up continually every day for however many years yep. without some sort of underlying meaning and purpose to it. So if someone's listening and, you know, maybe they have a couple passions and then they have a job, but they're looking for that something else, that that purpose in their work or in their lives and their family, whatever it may be how so how do you help the groups that you facilitate and work with um get clarity on that find meaning and purpose yeah well uh like the, we i try to encourage people to come up with a purpose statement and uh and it takes time it's not something like you just go in the room and come up with it like you really have to reflect and muse on it and uh 
it's, you know, one is, is finding kind of a spark, like something that draws you. It has to draw you uh, in some way. Um, and then it's slowly building meaning into that spark. Like there has to be more to it. Like obviously if you enjoy running, great. Uh, but well, maybe there's more to it. Maybe can you use running towards something? And then purpose has to be involved with that as well. And, and finally is that, how is it creating legacy for you? Because in, in many ways, uh, or how is it giving back? That's really important because the real purpose uh, should stand where like whatever you're doing is not for you, it's for someone else or for everyone else. And that's a really important piece of it uh, is that uh, if we rarely have a, or we don't have a purpose, if it's purely like, well, I just want to get as much money as I can, maybe for Donald Trump, I suppose, I don't know. But uh, is that, but generally that's not it, you know, there has to be more to it. And uh, it's not an easy mechanism, but we go through a series of having people addressing and having them fill this out and finally coming up with an idea to work on based on a framework and then moving forward with it. Um, too long to get into here, of course, but it's uh, it gets people thinking about it. And I think that's critical, but critical elements are like a spark and legacy and meaning uh, and thinking that, but there has to be that. You have to want to do it obviously because uh, you won't find purpose in something you hate doing uh, there has to be something and the kids want to do that they will like it's going back to that play point is very important i think um you never want to lose that we never want to lose our desire to just play do you do you ever lose yours do you ever do you ever do you ever get discouraged or or, oh, or distracted like Always. or do you have expedition you have the 2025 expedition planned no, already? No, I, there, I, there I focus on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, but you never know, right? Things come up. Right? 2023, we, uh, part of what year are we now? 2023, so 2021. Um, we, uh, we attempted it, failed, and uh, paused. So, okay, next year we're going to do this. And uh, this time uh, last year, Ray was, uh, my teammate was diagnosed with cancer. And um, uh, lymphoma. So we're like, okay, what does that even mean? For his life right and uh being ray the most like amazing character he just says well i'm gonna get through this it's gonna take six months and we're gonna do this next year well we are and amazingly he's got through this and uh between chemo treatments we went up north last year did this mini expedition which is madness in many ways but incredibly inspiring it's like you know we're here for a short time like you can and it's interesting because i don't know if i would have reacted that way i think i may have just spiraled into some very unhappy place and this guy didn't and i was i took a great amount of motivation from that inspiration from that is that we don't know what we got we don't know what cards we've been given really we never know so live for now in this anticipation i'm gonna well when i retire oh geez you know i always said now i'm at retirement age but uh i always said freedom 35 for me was like i retired a long time ago because i went i moved away from stuff that i didn't really want to do and i started to do stuff that i did want to do and as long as I live, I'm going to keep doing the things I want to do. And hopefully some of it makes money. So be it. But that's where I want to live my life. I'm not going to be uh, just, uh, you know, working, 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 thinking that someday I'll be able to enjoy it. And then realizing when I get to that point, I don't have any other interests and I've left everything behind that I did. And that's not a really good place to be. So not for me. And okay, let's talk about, because a, a part of that, a huge part of that is, and everything you do, because you also do architecture, really, yep. really gorgeous single family home architecture. And you've mentioned design a couple times and, yep. and creativity a little bit as well. But, you know, the creativity side where, you know, even if we're not creating art or, or something like that, like our, how, how we move through, through each and every day and how we think and, and how we interact with others and what we do, you know, that, that is an element of, it, of expression and creativity yep. just alone like that. Maybe we're not you know, architecturally designing houses or creating paintings or writing songs, whatever it may be. But you, you must dial, you must think about creativity a lot, especially when you're doing, you know, these long, I imagine there's a lot of long solo training yep. um, that you need to do for everything that you do. So you're sending, spending a lot of time in nature, moving through nature, uh, thinking about what's coming up and, and what you want to do and create. So how do you, how do you, how do you see creativity? How do you see, see creativity, whether with your the design that you do in, do in architecture or how you design this expedition that is coming up like how how important is creativity and, and design 
um, to you? And how do you how do you sort of bring the best out of that and, and get excitement from that? Well, it's personal expression, right? Uh, whatever it happens to be, be it painting, music, architecture, or an expedition. Is the creativity part is like coming up with the idea, and you come up with a like this kind of thought. And it's the same thing. Like I'll compare it to a, a house I've been designing, uh, which is over here um, on, on the west side. And uh, you know, like no, I, you have this kind of crazy idea. And uh, for me, it was a a deconstructed cube. And the reason being because the house it sits adjacent to is the cube house. It's called uh, just over here near Jericho, and um, it's known infamously or famously as a cube house. Some people love it. I think it's amazing. Other people don't like it at all, but it's a cube. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe point counterpoint. So I thought it'd be kind of fun. Uh, it naturally starts to become a deconstructed cube of sorts with views to the north and, and so forth. And it was really, uh, it was, it, it sounds so esoteric, like it's, but that's the nature of art. And that's where you start in architecture as much as you would saying, wouldn't it be cool if I could, wouldn't it could do this or like some idea for an adventure? It's very much an expression of yourself and what inspires you. And then you have to drill down on it and make it a reality. And as much in architecture is that you have to take these whimsical drawings you do and ideas and that you sell to a client. Then you have to have it to a point in terms of a technical package that you can submit it to the city of Vancouver and go through that process and then ultimately have a and meeting all the zoning and all the building code issues and then ultimately have this set of drawings given to a group of, of uh, craftsmen and builders who can put it together exactly where you envisioned it and so you really have to get down to the details uh so it's an interesting process and i find it very similar to the adventure world where you have this idea do something cool and wouldn't that be amazing if and and all the, the that associated with it, which is the creative side. And then it has to drill down to saying, I have budgets for this. I got to pay for this. <laughs> got to do that. What piece of gear do I need? And making it all work together. But I tell you, when you come out the other end, seeing a finished product um, or finishing a really difficult, challenging expedition and doing it successfully, uh, it's a similar gratification of feeling like you've done something. And it's also an inspiration. Like it's it's showing others through your actions what you're doing. Like it's like, wow, this actually can be done. Maybe I can do that too. And uh, I find them very similar. And the the act of doing it, whatever it happens to be. But you must love the, at least on the architecture side, and even the expedition side. You must love the creativity and and the process enough to go through those challenging times where you have to make the drawings and you have to submit to the city, yeah. or you have to get funding, or you have to make. 100 phone calls to get get one back and get some sponsorship you must you must love the drive of the creation and 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 the, and the overall larger mission to go through those challenging uh mundane tasks yeah and it's all part of it right like you don't get one without the other in a sense so you want to understand that and you try to find something good in it and something interesting in it uh yes there's times with architectural drives where like, I'm really done with this. This is so tedious. Um, but you know that it needs to be done it for later on what, to make sure that it's done right. Because if it's not, then they're going to make mistakes. And that comes with experience. Over the years, I've learned that the hard way, is that it has to be fully articulated for someone to get it. No mistakes made. And same in many ways in, you know, uh, in adventure, right? Uh, I mean, Roald Amundsen had the famous saying, adventure is just and the concept of adventure is just poor planning, and his, which I don't necessarily agree with, but uh, but his idea was, and you know, in his uh, very Scandinavian mentality, was that you can prepare everything, and there should be no adventure; it should be prepared and done. And I like that approach, of course, but invariably something's going to go wrong when you're trying something that <laughs> no one's tried before, um, and you have to be able to adjust and pivot and do whatever you have to do to deal with that. But do be. You want to be well prepared. You don't want to go into it unprepared. And same with architecture. Uh, you do it as best you can. And invariably, when they're building, something's going to come up. They're going to build it wrong. It's going to be off by three inches. Now what? Okay, well, let's figure this out. Uh, you have to work with it. But uh, try to get it as close as possible and then just let it do its thing. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the success of the product or whatever it may be, the expedition is... Whatever percentage going to be based on the preparation that has been done ahead yeah. of time. I think that speaks to anything and everything we do. But it's 100%. at least for for everything I do, I have to also be 
not attached to it going a very specific way. It's like, you know, you know, you said, you said, um, you know, in the preparation for this expedition, there, there, there's obviously so much that happens ahead of time, but you get, and I get, I get this even when I go on vacation and stuff, there's so much to, to, to prepare ahead of time, pack and think and plan and book things. But as soon as you get on that airplane or across the border or get in the car, you're like, you made it. Right. Yep. And you have to kind of surrender to yep. what's going to happen because not everything's going to go the way that you plan. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the most poignant moment for that for me was on the Rowan Ice Shelf uh, in Antarctica when we got flown down by this tiny little plane, landed on the sea ice, not kicked out the doors with our sleds. And the next stop was South Pole, which was 1,134 kilometers away across the Antarctic continent. And the plane just took off. And you're like, we are committed with what we brought here. If we forgot a day's food, we're going without food. If we got our, got our booties, you know, you got to deal with it from this point forward. So it, it's, it really frees you up in many ways. And uh, we were confident, but still you realize, wow, pretty committed here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Good stories to have. Well, no, this has been incredible. So how can, how can people keep track of or, you know, get get more information from you and what you're doing, whether in the speaking and training or the, the architecture or this upcoming expedition. Yeah, I mean, it's just me, my name. If you just type in my name on... And we'll, yeah, we'll put yeah. it in the show notes and links and all that uh, as well. Certainly websites. I have a, I, a two websites, but if you put in my name, you'll see both. I have a, a adventure website and I have a architecture website, both different. Um, and you can get a sense of what I do in the architectural world. It's all laid out there. And uh, on my professional site uh pardon me on my professional site and on my adventure site you can just see all the stuff i do as well in terms of uh speaking and uh leadership training and my expeditions yeah and there's a link there to the expedition that's coming up is there a way for us to for also to follow along in february march oh there will be and when everything goes live and it really will i mean there's a very it's a small site up there now um but uh and you can get that through my website but it's going to be a very robust site that you'll be able to follow daily. We'll be tracking daily. We're going to be sharing all sorts of, as much as we can through satellite images, video and everything. It should be great. Well, you inspired me already today because I was reading through a lot of your material last night and watching some videos and I'm like, I don't want to, but I'm going to get up and go for a run tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> I at least need to get my body moving <laughs> yes, and and feel good. So I, I appreciate that. But no, thanks. Thanks for this. And right. yeah, we're, we're, we're rooting for you. <laughs> yeah, it should be great. But it's going to be so cool to get to experience that without actually having to do it for the rest of us. Exactly. It's very hard to experience it until you're really in it, but you'll get a sense of it for sure. Beautiful. All right. Thank All you. Right, thank you. Well, if you've gotten this far, I trust you enjoyed the show. I appreciate any five-star reviews, likes, shares, or comments on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you know of just one other person who you think would also enjoy this episode, consider sending it directly to them. I appreciate you. See you next time.